Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. By the 14th century, so a couple of years ago now, uh, the Roman Catholic Church had developed a view of the gospel uh, according to which man cooperates with God's grace in salvation. And so simply put, our salvation is a cooperative effort. On God's part, His grace. On our part, our works. More specifically, the Roman Catholic Church taught that faith and good works together lead to and ultimately result in justification. As most of us know, uh, Martin Luther, the catalyst of the Reformation, uh, strongly, vehemently opposed Rome's teaching. Martin Luther proclaimed, articulated, and defended the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In his sermon series on Galatians, he made the following remark. There it is on the screen. It is most necessary, absolutely necessary, that we should know this article well. Not referring to a journal article. He's referring to what I just stated, the doctrine or the article of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is most necessary that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. And so guess what I'm going to do this morning? I am going to beat it into your head. This article, the doctrine, one more time, of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'm going to do this by turning our attention to one of the most lucid and one of the most important descriptions, articulations of this doctrine found in all of Scripture. And we find it in the book of Galatians chapter 2. If you'd pull up the next slide, Norm, there is our outline that we're following, book of Galatians. Uh, you can see where we've been, where we are, where we're going. We've covered the salutation. We've covered Paul's first word of caution. We've entered into the main body of the epistle. We're done with number one, almost, kind of, sort of, the gospel revealed. And this morning, we are embarking on number two, the gospel explained. And so this lucid articulation of the doctrine of justification. And so pick it up with me as I read God's word for us, again, beginning in chapter two, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so I have stated my goal this morning, again, in very Lutheresque language. It is to beat this doctrine into your head. But first things first, this text and the exposition of this text and wrapping our minds around exactly what Paul is saying in these verses. And so we need to do our homework. And the starting point is this, I believe. We need to bear in mind, we must keep in mind Paul's context. And we need to recognize a couple of things, two things to be specific. Firstly, we need to recognize that these verses... Again, I'm referring to the verses we just read, 15 through 21. These verses are part of his testimony going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 11. So just glance back there. Chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. There he begins a single paragraph. And that paragraph continues all the way through to the end of chapter 2. And so our verses are still part of his testimony. His testimony in which he is countering his opponent's charge that he has corrupted the gospel that he received from the other apostles. And he has corrupted it how? By neglecting to, refusing to teach what? That observance of the Old Testament law is absolutely necessary to obtain a right standing in the sight of God. He does not teach that. His opponents are saying, hey, the other apostles teach that. You have deviated. You have departed. And so in chapter 1, verse 11, again, in case you missed it, all the way through to the end of chapter 2, he is refuting his opponent's charge. The second thing we need to notice is this. Verses 15 through 21 are part of his fourth appeal. A little confusing for you. My apologies if you've not been here the past couple of Sundays. But just quickly, in this great testimony then, chapter 1, verse 11, through to chapter 2, verse 21, as Paul refutes his opponents, he does so by making four appeals. I'm not going to repeat them now. They're on an audio video somewhere. You can go back and you can get up to speed on that if you like. The point I simply want us to get is this, that verses 15 through 21 are still part of his fourth appeal. What happens in his fourth appeal, which begins in chapter 2, verse 11? He recounts what happened in the city of Antioch in Syria. Everything was going beautifully, wonderfully. Cephas, also known as Peter, was visiting. And Peter knew the truth. I mean, you think back. Think back on Acts chapter 10. What happened in Acts chapter 10? Remember, Peter had that vision three times. And each time, what did he see? A sheet. A sheet full of what? Unclean animals. And the point was what? Peter was about to hear a knock at his door. And who was knocking on his door? A couple of Gentiles. And what did they want? 
They wanted him to go to the city of Caesarea to meet with a Gentile, a centurion. So what was the Lord preparing Peter for through those three visions? He was articulating to Peter, look, that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is gone. That, that, that idea, this observance of the Old Testament law as necessary to be part of the people of God, it is now obliterated. Peter knows this truth. This is not something foreign to Peter. He understands it. But what happens now in the city of Antioch? He acts contrary to what he knows. He does the exact opposite. And he withdraws from Gentile Christians. Withdraws from them. He won't eat with them. Why? He's afraid of the Jews. He's afraid that some, I don't know, his reputation might suffer. He might be ostracized. I don't know. He's afraid. And therefore, he backs away from fellowshipping with Gentile Christians. And Paul opposes him to his face. And Paul asks a question right there in verse 14, toward the end of the verse. I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, do you realize what we have in verses 15 through 21? We have Paul's answer to his own question. It's his answer to his own question, and I submit to you, he is still speaking to whom? He's still speaking to Peter. Look at what he says at the outset of the 15th verse. We, it's emphatic, we, ourselves, you and me, Peter, you and me, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know, we, Peter, you and me, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Peter, you and me, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Are you following him? Verses 15 through 21, he is answering his own question, which he's put out there in verse 14. And he is still engaging Peter in discussion. Norm's going to bring up another slide. And it's going to pretty well sum up then Paul's point. There you have it. Verses 15 through 21. You have the question in verse 14. The answer in verse 15 to 21. Of course you can't do that, Peter. Of course you can't do that. And you must stop doing that. Here's why. Four reasons. Number one. You are acting, when you do that, by withdrawing from the Gentiles and by implication, you, you, are, you are expressing this idea that they must observe the Old Testament law in order to have a right standing with God. Number one, Peter, you are acting contrary to what you know. That's what you're doing, verses 15 through 16. Secondly, you are rebuilding what you've already torn down, as verses 17 and 18. Thirdly, you are denying the significance of the cross, verses 19 and 20, and then the capstone, verse 21. Fourthly, you are implying that Christ died for no purpose. In other words, Peter, you know the answer to my question back in verse 14, and my counsel, my exhortation to you, Peter, is simply this. Stop it. Stop it. You are acting in a manner that is absolutely inconsistent with the gospel that both you and I believe, that you and I 
hold dear. Now, all we're going to do today is concern ourselves with verses 15 and 16. Actually, just before we get to that, let me just give you a summation then, and then Norm can just take away all the slides. No more coming. Here's a summation then of verses 15 through 21, Paul's argument to Peter. If, essentially he's saying this, if members of the covenant people, by that I mean the Jews, the covenant people, the Old Testament covenant people, if members of the covenant people, such as you and me, right, Peter, you and me, need to put their faith in Christ in order to have a right relationship with God, then it is absolutely senseless for you to require Gentile Christians to observe the Old Testament law in order to have a right relationship with God. When you, therefore, withdraw from Gentile Christians, you are acting contrary to what you no, that is the main thrust of this section, verses 15 through 21, and it is certainly the principal message of verses 15 and 16. I want you to notice a few things in verses 15 and 16. I want you to notice that there are three phrases employed three times. And so if we really want to grasp what Paul is arguing here, we need to get our minds around definitions. We're still in the realm of exposition here. We need to define our terms. The first term we need to define is this. What does Paul mean by the word justified? He uses it three times. You can go on and read chapter 3, chapter 4. You can definitely go back to Romans 5, perhaps most clearly uh, Romans chapter 8, and we discover that in Paul's mind, Justification is the opposite of what? Condemnation. To condemn is what? It is to declare you're guilty. Well, if justification is the opposite of condemnation, then to justify is to declare what? You are not guilty. So condemnation, you are not in a right relationship with God. You do not have a right standing in God's sight. You are, you are condemned. Justification you are not guilty. You are now in a right relationship with God. So that is the meaning of that term justification. The second expression we need to define is this. What does Paul mean by the works of the law? This is controversial. This is controversial. What does he mean by the works of the law? Two minutes, just two minutes, not a second more. If you have been reading or if you have been listening you have come across what has been known for maybe the last 15, 20 years now as the new perspective on Paul. A court, I, don't want, I don't want to get bogged down here, but it's important we acknowledge it, especially if any of you have been reading in this realm. According to the new perspective on Paul, this expression, the works of the law, only refers to those laws which created a divide between Jew and Gentile. So those laws which are of an ethnic connotation, that they are those laws which separate Jews and Gentiles, they are essentially identity markers. Well, that's partly true, but is it the whole truth? If it's the whole truth, what happens according to the new perspective? What happens is this, your doctrine of justification changes because justification no longer has to do with salvation. To be justified in the present is to be what? It is to be declared a member of God's people. God's community. 
Well, in that line of thinking, then, what is justification salvifically speaking? Well, justification salvifically speaking isn't something we even know right now. That is something that only happens on the judgment day, and it is the fruit of two things. It is the fruit of Christ's work upon the cross, and it is the fruit of the Spirit's work in us, whereby what are produced good works. Therefore, it is Christ's work and our works, which in the final day will lead to what? The sentence being passed of what? Justification. That ought to sound familiar. Because what is it? It's essentially Roman Catholic dogma is what it is. And so we need to go right back to the starting point. What does Paul mean by works of the law? Am I I two minutes up? Quickly, chapter 3, just look over in chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Well, already that impresses me that it's got more to do with just uh, those ethnic laws. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Evidently, as Paul speaks in these terms, works of the law, condemnation, justification, he is thinking salvifically, not referring to simply this designation as to who belongs to God's people, but no, he is referring to our very standing salvifically in the sight of God. And this expression, the works of the law, is an expression that designates the Old Testament law in its entirety. And it is a reminder that that law demands perfect obedience in order for an individual to have a right standing in God's sight. And Paul's point is what? No one can do that. No one can ever obtain a right standing in God's sight by observing everything written in the law. Hence the need for what? A Savior, the Lord Jesus, whom we believe in, and that faith is reckoned to us, therefore, as what? Righteousness, whereby we are justified. Rather than declared guilty, we are declared not guilty in the sight of God by virtue of our standing in Christ. The third question then, definition. What does Paul mean by faith in Jesus Christ? He uses it, or derivatives of that expression, faith, three times in these verses. Simply put, it is God's gift whereby we know Christ and we apply Christ. We believe Christ is really ours. That's what it means. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to believe Christ is really ours. It is to cease from striving. It is to cease from working. And when it comes to salvation and the determinative factor in my relationship with God It is to understand the only thing I'm bringing to the equation is my sin. And salvation is completely contingent upon the Lord Jesus. And I am looking to the Lord Jesus. Do you have the three definitions? 
with those three definitions in view then, the doctrine of justification, Luther's expression as we seek to beat it into our heads. I want to summarize it for you this day in seven points. Seven points. And let me speak from the outset to three groups of people. There are more than three, but three will suffice. Number one, you're a believer and you're reveling in it this day. All right? Praise God. As we go through these seven points, I trust your reveling is heightened and your love for God expanded, your hope in God enlarged, your faith in God strengthened, and you go out of this place rejoicing. All right? Second group I want to identify is this. You're a believer, but let's face it, for the last little bit, you've been uh, playing in the muck and the mire and things aren't going so well. You're not doing so well. And uh, maybe doubts have set in, not doubts, but certainly perplexities. And you know you're not where you should be. You are a bone out of joint. All is not well. Listen, 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 please, to these seven points. And I pray your faith will be renewed. You will, yes, repent and confess your sin to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that you too might go out of here renewed, refreshed, rejoicing in the Lord. Group number three, you're not even a believer. Young, old, you're most welcome. We're glad you're here with us this morning. But you know, as you just sort of take stock, look inside, I, I'm not, I'm not a believer. I, I'm not a Christian. I wouldn't identify myself as a Christian. Or maybe I have identified myself as a Christian, but it's just been a cultural thing. And I know in reality, I don't have any relationship with God at all. And I'm not in a right standing with him. I beg you, young and old. Young, you can understand this, you young ones. These seven points. That you pay careful attention to this as I walk you through the gospel as I walk you through what it means to be justified by grace through faith in Christ. And by the end, I pray, you are looking away from yourself. You are looking to the Lord Jesus. And you go out of this place rejoicing, having found forgiveness of your sins and hope for eternal life in Christ Jesus alone. There you go. You fall, into, you fall into one of those three categories, right? We're not asking for a show of hands as to which one you fit into, but right now you've identified yourself somewhere. So listen to these seven points now as we seek to take to heart this wonderful doctrine, seven points as they arise out of verses 15 and 16 of Galatians 2. Point number one, the starting point. We must obey God's law in order to be right with him. There you have it. Did you get it? We, you and me, must, must, must obey God's law in order to be right, to know a right standing with God. You can go back to Romans 2. And the Apostle Paul explains it like this. He says, look, yes, you've got Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews, they have the law written on tablets, the Decalogue, the commands of God. And they are condemned for what? Not obeying those commandments. The Gentiles, the nations for centuries, well, they didn't have that law. They were on the outside looking in. But what does Paul say in Romans 2? They had the law written on their hearts. 
And so what's Paul's point? Paul's point is simply this. You can travel anywhere in the world this day, and everyone knows it's wrong to murder. Everyone knows it's wrong to steal. Everyone knows it's wrong to commit adultery. Everyone knows these things are wrong. Why? Because there is an innate God-implanted knowledge of his law. And so the Jews, well, they had the law for all those centuries. Well, they're condemned because no one ever kept it. And, and, and they're condemned for not obeying it. They must obey it, but they haven't. The Gentiles, they have a, the law as well, but they've never obeyed it. And therefore, they are condemned not for not obeying what was never given to them, the written law, but for not obeying what God has implanted on their own hearts, and they have a conscience that convicts them or justifies them according to their behavior and conduct. And so we are under what we call a covenant, and is the covenant of works. This is the starting point for understanding your relationship with God. You must, you must, there's, there's no equivocation here. There's no way to get out from under it. You and I, we must obey God's law in order to be right with him. Point number two is this. We can't obey God's law. Can't do it. Have you ever misrepresented the truth? Don't answer. I already know the answer. Have you ever mis... I put that so nicely. Have, have you ever misrepresented the truth? Have you ever craved something that belonged to someone else? Have you ever taken something that was not yours? Have you ever experienced anger or resentment or bitterness towards someone else? Well, then, my friend, you are a lie. As I look down as I say this, not wanting to catch anyone's eye, you are a lying, coveting, thieving, murdering, no good sinner. That is what you are. And that is what I am. But it's worse than that. That's not what I said. I said we can't obey God's law. I didn't say we've disobeyed God's law. The point I'm making is this, and we better understand it, is we can't even obey God's law. Here is the stumbling block for millions of people, and perhaps even some in this room. We can't even obey God's law. It is an impossibility. Now, what do we mean by that? We take one of these small children. Well, the really young ones have gone out, right? Three and under. So take a two-year-old, him or her, doesn't matter. You walk down to the basketball court out back there. You hand them a full-sized basketball. There's the basketball net. I'm going to give you 100 tries, sink a basket. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen if you give them a million tries. Why? It is what? It's impossible. Careful. It is a physical impossibility. When I say we can't obey God's law, I am not referring to a physical or natural impossibility. I am referring to a moral impossibility. We can't obey God's law because we won't obey God's law because we hate God's law. Work it back because, according to Romans 8, the flesh is at enmity with God, therefore, we hate God. We can't obey his law because we won't obey his law. We won't obey his law because we don't want to obey his law. We don't want to obey his law because we hate his law, and we hate his law because we hate him. Therefore, it is a moral impossibility. These are the first two points. They're the starting point. You get them wrong, you've got the gospel wrong. You're off on a tangent, you're in left field, you've no longer got sight of the truth. Oh, how clear we must be. We must obey God's law in order to be right with him. 
We can't obey God's law. It's Paul's point there, right at the end of verse 16. There's an inference to Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not, it's David's cry, enter not, O God. Enter not into judgment with me, your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. No one enjoys a right standing with God. All have transgressed his law, and all have transgressed his law because all hate his law. Our sin, we are riddled with self-love. And this self-love alienates us from God. And it therefore means, even when I do something that appears good in the eyes of my fellow man, I am not doing it for the only reason that counts as worthy in the sight of God, which is what? Love for him. I am to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And anything I do that is not an expression of that kind of love and the aim of which is his glory and his glory alone is completely worthless and unacceptable in his sight. You might be an upstanding citizen of this country. That's wonderful. You might be the greatest neighbor on the face of the earth that anyone has ever had. Fantastic. I applaud you for that. You look back on your life. You've been faithful to your spouse for 30, 40 years. You've worked hard at your job. You've given out of your prosperity to others. You mow your neighbor's lawn. Uh, an ill word, you, you know, blasphemy or anything like that has never come out of your mouth. Oh, all of these things are good. Oh, my friend, please understand if you have not been born again by the Spirit of God and you trace all of those things back to their most basic basic, fundamental, motivating factor. Oh, please be honest with yourself. You will discover it is not love for God and a desire for the glory of God. These are merely expressions of love of self. I'll repeat it again. There you have it. It's the stumbling block. That is the stumbling block for millions in our day. Because why? The natural man is convinced of what? That when it comes to his relationship with God, it is a question of demerits and merits. He thinks quantitatively. And as long as my merits outweigh my demerits, and I'm not as bad as some of those really bad people I read of in the newspaper, then I'm going to find my path to God. That is at the foundation of Every religious system on the face of the earth right now, sadly, it is the foundation of much of what passes at Christianity in our day. No, my friend, we must. Oh, I know it's difficult to swallow. We must obey God's law in order to be right with him. We can't obey God's law. And when it comes right down to it, we don't want to obey God's law. And we don't want to obey God's law because we're no fan of God. We're no fan of God. Here's the third point we need to be crystal clear on. Number three, we must obey God's law in the person of a mediator. We must obey God's law in the person of a mediator. 
we need someone. This is it. We need to look away from ourselves. And we need someone to do what we cannot do. We can put a name to this mediator. His name is Jesus Christ. We need someone, the Son of God, who came into this world, and he was born under that law, born under it, subject to it. But he was not born with a sinful human nature, but he was born under that law. And from the cradle to the cross, he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he obeyed God perfectly from his birth to his death. Perfect obedience. Every thought, every word, every deed. For what reason? What motivation? Oh, the love of God. With what goal? What end in view? Oh, the glory of God. And having fulfilled that law, his greatest act then of obedience upon Calvary's cross was what? It was to bear the penalty, which we rightly deserve for having broken the law more times than we can possibly count or even comprehend. He bore that penalty upon Calvary's cross. He became the object of God's righteous indignation upon Calvary's cross. God was well pleased with his sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And so, yes, we must obey God's law in order to be right with him. Yes, I'm getting it now. I can't obey God's law. Therefore, I should be driven outside of myself, searching for someone who has obeyed God's law perfectly. And I must now obey God's law in the person of that individual, that mediator. Now, building on this, point number four, we become one with this mediator. How? Through faith. We become one with this mediator through faith. Faith is the instrument by which we take hold of Jesus Christ. It involves a knowledge of Christ, who he is, the son of God. He became a man. As I've said, he lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross. Three days later, he rose again. He ascended on high. Now he's enthroned in majesty at the right hand of the Father. And so, yes, we know Jesus Christ. We know who he is. We know what he has done. Faith, I apply Jesus Christ. And that's why you get John is very good on this, very strong on this. That's why you get all of that language in John's gospel account. Oh, you need to eat him, right? The Lord Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood. What is that? It's appropriation. It's taking the Lord Jesus. Again, it's recognizing I've got nothing. I bring nothing. I am nothing. I am a rebel. I understand I'm under condemnation. And if I were to pass from the scene this day, it's hell for me. I get it. I understand it. I have rebelled against my creator. Now I'm looking to the Lord Jesus. Oh, as he said, as the serpent was listed, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. When that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, do you remember the Israelites? They'd been bitten by snakes. What did they have to do to be cured? There was no penance. There was no running around seeking after works of righteousness. There was nothing they had to perform. What did they have to do? They simply had to look. 
Look to that serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. And immediately they were healed. Oh, there's the nature of saving faith. Looking, yes, we must know him. Looking, where you, by, yes, we're applying him. We are taking the Lord Jesus as our one and only hope of salvation. And then what builds on this? It's the fifth point. Once we become one with the mediator through faith. Number five, God accepts the mediator's obedience as if it were ours, right? We must obey God's law. We can't obey God's law. We must obey God's law in the person of a mediator. We become one with that mediator through faith. And by virtue of our union with that mediator, God now accepts the mediator's obedience as if it is ours. Meaning what? Going all the way back to number one, I have fulfilled number one. We must obey God's law in order to be right with him. I've done it. Is it me that's done it? No, I'm now one with the one who has done it. It is the Lord Jesus who has done it. It's the Lord Jesus who has done everything. I've simply now looked to the Lord Jesus. I'm simply now believing in him. And in the reckoning of God, by virtue of the spirit of God, I become one with the Lord Jesus in God's estimation. Therefore, God treats me as if I were Christ. And he deals with me as if I were Christ. And on that basis, he looks favorably upon me. He looks lovingly upon me. He looks mercifully upon me because that double debt, it's a double debt, isn't it? The requirement to obey and the requirement to pay the penalty for not having paid it, Christ has paid that double debt in full. It is completed. And now I am one with him. And God accepts the mediator's obedience as if it were ours. Number six, flowing from number five. God, therefore, justifies us as a free gift. He justifies us. You, right there. You're one with my son through faith. Well, guess what then? You have kept my law. Not you. Pity help us all. Not you. My son has done it. But you are one with my son. Therefore, I reckon it to you as if it were yours. It's not really yours. You possess it now, but he has done everything. And therefore, that sentence formerly, you were condemned. You're guilty. Well, now I declare what? Not guilty. You're not guilty because you are one with my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God changes the verdict from condemned to justified. And the sentence from death to life. Oh, let me demonstrate for you another gospel and how we can mess this up so quickly. Here's the question. I've asked many people this question over the years. You pass from this scene today. You die this day. And you stand before the Almighty and He asks you, Why should I permit you to enter heaven? Why should I permit you to enter heaven? Right now, answer that question in your mind. Why should I, God speaking to you on the judgment day, why should I allow you into heaven? There we are, eternity, two destinies, 
right? The narrow way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction. Why should you get in here? Have you got your answer? We have three ways, three answers. You can mess this up so quickly. Number one, well, I've done my best. I've, d- I've done my best, Lord. That's justification by works. That is another gospel. It's not the gospel I'm proclaiming. I've done my best. If that was the answer to your question, you still need to be saved. You need to look to the Lord Jesus this very moment and be saved. You're trusting in yourself, what you have done, who you are, what you think you are. Second answer to the question, I believe in Christ and have tried to follow him. That's justification by faith plus works. It's another gospel. It's not the gospel I'm proclaiming, folks. I believe in him. Everything you said, I believe in him, and I've done my best to follow him. That is justification by faith plus works. It's another gospel. Here's a third answer, even more subtle. I believe in Christ with all my heart. That's justification by faith as a work. That's justification by faith as a work. That's an individual who actually believes in their faith. That's an individual who actually thinks their act of believing is meritorious. That's the person who actually thinks, because I said the prayer, because I walked the aisle, because I sat in the sinner's bench, because I filled in the form, because I raised my hand, because I did something, I made a choice, I believed, Lord, that's why you should let me in. That's not faith in Christ. That's faith in what? That's faith in my faith. That is another gospel. That is not the gospel I'm proclaiming. Here's the question again. God speaking to you. Why should I permit you to enter heaven? The an- Here's the right answer. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Not in a million years. You shouldn't. But I'm with him. I'm with him. You know him. His name's Jesus. He's your eternal son. Uh, if I get in, there's the reason, the only reason. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. I I believe in him. Uh, He's my hope. I'm resting in him. I'm with him. Oh, look away from me. I know you do look away from me because I believe in him. Therefore, I am one with him. Therefore, when it comes to judgment, you're treating me as if I were him. And therefore, you've already proclaimed what? Not guilty. That is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anybody need to get saved this day? I mean, do you really understand the gospel? What it is we are proclaiming and what it is to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Number seven, the capstone. Justification is the foundation of everything. Foundation of everything. Here's the foundation of our hope. We hear the Lord Jesus cry from Calvary's cross, it is finished. What did he mean? Simply the pain he was suffering on Calvary's cross? No, he's looking back on his entire life. From the moment of his birth up until that moment, it is finished. My entire act of obedience my entire life of submission to the will of the Father, my substitutionary life on behalf of my people, whereby I have fulfilled the rigors of the law and I have now borne the penalty of the law, it is finished. It is completed. Here is the foundation of our hope. Here too is the foundation of our obedience. 
Should we obey? Of course we should obey. If you think justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is an excuse for you to do whatever you want to do, you still don't get it, my friend. Well, that sounds wonderful. All I have to do is look to the Lord Jesus, and then I can do whatever I want. If you're still living in that world of, well, you know, okay, I believe in the Lord Jesus. How much now can I get away with? And what do I have to do just to give me the bare minimum? You still don't get it. You still don't get it. What it means to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Oh, when this, when this comes home, it comes home like a lightning bolt. And the, refer, the first words out of our mouths is what? Not my will, but thine be done. My desire now is, to, is what? Is to know the will of the one who has loved me and given himself for me. And obedience, we don't obey to satisfy God's law or, 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 to, or to turn away his wrath. We don't obey to secure salvation. We obey because we want to. We've become alive in the Lord Jesus. And now as an expression of our love for him, we seek to know his will and to do it. Here, thirdly, is the foundation of our comfort. John Bunyan, reflecting on this great truth centuries ago, Sinner, the words of God. He imagined God speaking to him. Sinner, you think I can't save you because of your sins. Sinner, you think I can't save you because of your sins. Sinner, my son is beside me. Guess what? I inserted that. That wasn't Bunyan. Guess what? I'm looking at him, not you. I'm looking at him not you, and I will deal with you as I am pleased with him. Oh, we must hear it over and over again. We must strive to live in the sight of God's infinite merit. We might, if you can remember way back to where we began, I think this is why Luther said it, we must beat this doctrine into our heads continually. Why? Because you'll go out of this place and away it will go, away it will go. Oh, the need to emphasize it repeatedly, what it means to live in the sight of Christ's infinite merit. Oh, it's the foundation of everything. Here is the foundation of thankfulness. We're going to sing it in a few moments. No condemnation, now I dread. No condemnation, now I dread. I've put a lot of questions out there this morning. One more. No condemnation, as we sing it in a few moments. No condemnation, now I dread. Does that thrill you or bore you? Honestly, does it thrill you or bore you? I'll put it to you. If it bores you, you still don't get it. You really don't get it. Oh, what it means to be in Christ and hear that proclamation there is. Therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. William Perkins stated, if we believe, if we really believe that Christ suffered and fulfilled the law for us, we are worse than animals if we do not every way show ourselves thankful for this great mercy. One more. Here's the foundation of our happiness. Blessed, writes Paul, quoting David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his iniquity. Blessedness, blessedness, blessedness. Happiness. As the hymn writer so eloquently put it, I sighed for rest 
and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee, but while I passed my Savior by, his love laid hold of me. Now none but Christ can satisfy, none other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Oh, our Father, oh, our Father, we pray that this might ring true with every man, woman, boy, girl gathered here in your very presence this day. Love and life and lasting joy, all freely offered in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For unbelievers, we pray that this might be the day of salvation. And for your people, we pray that this might be a day of rejoicing as we ponder this sweet fellowship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, receive our thanks as we offer it. In his matchless name we pray. Amen.